except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who, are la who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures, making us your people. You've brought us again to this amazing gospel to learn more about your son Jesus. And we ask this morning to help us understand what it really means to come to you, why it's important and why we so desperately need it. Remind us again what it means to follow you and not ourselves. So by your spirit, open this gospel to us. Help us to see Jesus. For this we need your grace. And give us the desire to learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've been online at all this week, you know the news that seemed to blow up the internet this week was the performance of Miley Cyrus on the MTV Video Music Awards show. Now, I am not recommending that you watch it. It is well beyond what should be acceptable. It's pretty profane, and it represents a long fall from the good girl image she once projected. And for once, much of the secular press actually agreed with the Christian consensus that her performance with Robin Thicke was utterly unacceptable. However, it's hard to understand how everyone got so upset that a pop star who made a hit song about being a vulgar, drug-addled floozy had the audacity to go on stage and act like a vulgar, drug-addled floozy. You do realize her performance was an actual portrayal of the content of the actual song, which is currently sitting at number one on the Billboard pop charts. And you can't get away with saying, well, we, we just like to listen to young women promote and glorify debauchery and hedonism but we don't want to see it. Because truth be told, we do want to see it. There's a billion-dollar pornography industry. Or maybe you just don't want to see it on MTV. But if you think about it, that's also nuts. Because that's why MTV exists, to promote and glorify debauchery and hedonism. Why are we surprised? But as I thought about this, I thought she probably accomplished her purpose. Moved her song to number one, further distanced herself from her Disney princess image? You can be sure Miley Cyrus isn't regretting her VMA appearance. She has ensured her place in the spotlight in what may be the most effective way possible. I mean, everybody loves to watch a train wreck. And this was. And I can't imagine that anyone at MTV, least of all her, is surprised by any of these reactions. I think they were planning and hoping and trying to get exactly the kind of reaction that they got. I'm pretty sure they believe that no, you know, any press at all is good press. Well, I've read about a dozen articles about this incident, and I only found one that addressed how Jesus would deal with it. And the main point of the article is, like the woman at the well in John chapter 4, Jesus would probably move towards her, confronting the sin, but being gracious with the person. So what would Jesus say? So I've done a lot of thought trying to figure out how Jesus would deal with this. And I think, first of all, 
he would tell Miley Cyrus that she's just the type of person that he came to spend time with. And I know there's a lot of people that probably don't want to hear that, but I think it's true. Jesus came to spend time with people just like Miley Cyrus. In the Gospel of Luke, the religious conservatives of Jesus' day grumbled about the people he hung out with. In Luke 5, we read, the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So I think Jesus may have well gone to the VMA after party and uh, sat down uh, with Miley and her crew. That wouldn't be unlike Jesus at all. Just kind of walk right in. You know, I have a feeling that would probably put a damper on the conversation, just my guess. But that's the very reason he left the holiness in heaven, to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom to people just like Miley Cyrus. How do I know that's true? Well, not only, primarily, but not only because the Bible says so, but also because Jesus came to rescue us. And truth be told, we're not all that different from Miley Cyrus. Most of us love attention and rebellion and the thrill of the moment. In fact, Scripture says that too. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, Or do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If we're honest, at some level, none of us are all that different than Miley Cyrus. We not, might not parade our sin in front of the world on MTV, but Jesus sees the depths of all our hearts. And we are deeply deceived if we think that commends us to God. Good news, however, is found again in the Gospel, uh, this time in Luke, where we read, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus came for people like me and you and Miley. And I'm pretty sure that Jesus would tell Miley that he's just the kind of girl he came to spend time with. However, I think Jesus would also tell Miley that her sin is deadly for herself and for others. He would say that while the thrills and the power of captivating millions of viewers seem to be fulfilling her soul, she's being robbed of the true joy that only Christ can give. I think he would say something like, uh, Miley's sin is deceiving you. It's blinding you. It told you it only wants a little, but it always wants more. Sin will never stop until it has consumed you. And I think Jesus would also tell her that her sin isn't just corrupting her own heart, but she's leading others into temptation as well. And he'd remind her that there's the eyes of millions of young girls look to her to learn what it means to be a woman. But rather than find an example that leads them to fear the Lord, they find one more reason to give their hearts to people who don't care about them. Of course, Miley's not the only one leading people to sin, but I think Jesus would remind her exactly what he told his disciples in Luke 17, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. I'm sure Jesus would tell Miley that her sin is deadly for herself 
and for others. And finally, I think Jesus would tell Miley that she's going to be judged one day, and she needs to start getting ready today. We'll all stand before God one day and give an account for our lives, and that should sober us and cause us to uh, give serious consideration of what we're going to say on that day. In the song that Miley performed on the VMAs, there's a line that says, only God can judge us. In one sense, she's right. God is the final and ultimate judge. Only he knows our hearts and only he knows all our ways. However, we shouldn't find any comfort in that line if we're not following Jesus. In John 3, we're told, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And to rest in that mantra that only God can judge us is not going to bring us peace if we haven't turned from our sin and trusted in Jesus. Instead, we should tremble at the prospect of standing before our Maker on that day when all secrets are seen. After all, judgment is just what he's threatened in the verses immediately preceding today's passage. He makes it clear there's judgment for sin. He makes it clear the lack of repentance guarantees judgment. Now granted, this text today is about grace. That's why we like it. But as we saw last week, you can't understand grace apart from judgment, love apart from wrath. And so here Jesus is following up words of judgment with words of grace. So turn with me to Matthew 11, starting at verse 25. We're going to look at the graciousness of God. The graciousness of God. Give you a moment to fill that, you know, get the long word in there, in the blank, in your bulletin. Starting at verse 25, we read, At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. In the context of these words, Jesus has just pronounced a curse on the cities that didn't repent at his preaching. As we saw last week in verses 20 to 24, we saw the sad spectacle of people who had heard Jesus preach, had seen his miracles, and yet they hadn't responded to him in faith. And he says, it is going to be bad for you on that day. At the same time, Luke tells us that disciples had just come back from their first preaching mission. They reported some had responded to the gospel of the kingdom, but others had rejected it. And I think at that moment, Jesus could have been profoundly discouraged. Here's the first major effort to spread the gospel to the surrounding countryside, and many people had rejected the message. They had rejected the miracles. He could have been discouraged. He should have been discouraged. And yet, in that context, Jesus brings thanksgiving to his heavenly Father. Christ's heart is compassionate towards sinners. His love, I mean, Jesus' heart must have been just like downcast at the unbelief that he's seen in these cities, places he had done his miracles, and cities where his gospel had been preached. And he'd been rejected. But he lifts up this prayer of thanksgiving to his heavenly Father. And in this prayer, he contemplates God's sovereignty. 
and God's wisdom. And the fact that God has caused some to respond to the gospel. Look at what he does there. He praises God as sovereign. Verse 26, for such was your gracious will. He could have been discouraged by the circumstances, but instead he's encouraged in that whatever response has occurred in the preaching of his disciples in response to his miracles, it is according to the Father's will. And he thanks God for his wisdom. It pleased the Father to reveal the gospel of grace to those who are humble and to hide it from those who are proud. And Christ is encouraged by those things. And when we find ourselves in discouraging circumstances, the last thing we tend to do is thank God. But here Jesus' example reminds us that we ought to take comfort in God, in his decrees, in his wisdom, in his faithfulness, in his promises. No, Jesus approaches his Father as Lord of heaven and earth. He approaches God as his Father. He did this constantly, praying, My Father. In comparison, he taught his disciples to pray to our Father. But now it's my Father, indicating he has a special relationship with his Heavenly Father. And I think it's interesting that at precisely this time of discouragement, Christ highlights the fact that God is his Father. And likewise, we ourselves ought to draw encouragement in discouraging times by reminding ourselves that by our adoption, God is our Father. Langston Hagen is a PCA uh, minister in Alabama. And he told the story of how God showed him this truth one day. He, he, he spoke of hearing his daughter run down the hall in their home. And she ran uh, into the bedroom and was standing outside of the bathroom one morning while he's shaving. And she announced in a very loud voice to her mother that she was going to find her father. And she said, I'm going to find my daddy. And when I do, He's going to love me. And she said those words uh, with great confidence. And he said, it just hit him with great spiritual force. He realized at that moment that her confidence, that once she was in his presence, he was going to love her. She was absolutely confident of that. And he said, I ought to have that same kind of confidence when I go into the presence of my Heavenly Father, that when I'm in His presence, He's going to love me. That's precisely the confidence that Jesus has. That God's will, that God's purposes for Him would be good because He was His Father. I want you to note the things that Jesus thanks God for uh, in these verses. Uh, he thanks God for several things. First, He thanks God that the Gospel is revealed. Under the Old Covenant, the gospel had been set forward in shadows and types and promises and prophecies. But now in the preaching and miracles of Christ, the preaching of the disciples, the gospel is being set forth clearly. The Old Testament is coming to fulfillment. And Jesus praises his Father. This mystery is being revealed in the fullness of time. But he goes on to thank God that God is specifically revealing the gospel to those who are humble. He says you revealed them to little children. Jesus is highlighting the unexpected character of the gospel. There are those who, who were great, who were well thought of, who were mighty and powerful in the land, and they were rejecting the gospel. 
but those who were humble, those who were not the center of the attention in the land, they were receiving the gospel. And he praises God. And we learn that he came not uh, to give to those who had much, but to those who realized they had little. But notice also he praises his father for the fact that his gospel's been magnified, mercy's been magnified, because it's not revealed to the wise. He says, you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. God has made a distinction. Jesus says, not only have you revealed these things to the humble, you've not revealed these things to the proud. He makes a distinction between those who've received the gospel and those who've rejected it. And he does this so that those who've received it will realize how great God's grace and mercy is to them. In other words, when we see God's mercy on us, it ought to move us not to be proud, but to realize the fact that there are many, many, many others who have not received the grace and mercy of God. And I think still today, the intelligent, the educated, the self-sufficient, those who consider themselves wise and understanding, are the ones who so often reject God. As James told us in James 4, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So we see that God is sovereign in who he gives his grace uh, to. He gives it to the humble. And he's sovereign in who he doesn't give his grace to, not to the proud. But not only is God the Father sovereign, so is God the Son. We see that in the next verse, verse 27, which has the deep claim of Jesus. The deep claim of Jesus. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and no one or no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. In this passage, Jesus is going to set before us his authority. Because he's about to make an invitation that will boggle the mind. So before he makes that invitation, he's going to remind you of who he is. And in one packed sentence, he asserts four things about who he is. First, he says, all things have been handed over to me by the Father. He tells us that he has exclusive and absolute authority. Jesus is saying this as if it's already occurred. He's looking forward to the ascension after the crucifixion, after the death, after the burial, after the resurrection, when he ascends out high and sits on the throne at the right hand of God and takes authority over all things for the sake of his people. He reminds his disciples, all authority has been given to me. Now this is the person who's going to say, come to me, one who has all authority. Because the sinner wants to know, does this man know what I need, and does he have what I need? And his first answer is, all authority has been given to me. Second thing he says is, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. He claims to have an exclusive relationship with the Father. John 17 tells us, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Salvation is knowing God. And Jesus is saying, God knows me. And then he says, and I know God like no one else knows him. So again, as the sinner asks, does this man know what I need and does he have what I need? Jesus is answering the question before we can ask it. He's claiming an exclusive higher understanding of this relationship that he has with the Heavenly Father. Now, these are good Jewish folk who are listening to him. 
And they have to be thinking, he's standing in front of them, basically saying, Moses didn't have an inkling of what the Father was like in comparison to me. Elijah didn't have a clue about who the Father is. I know him better than anyone. There's nobody in the universe who knows God like I know God. And if salvation is knowing God, then you've got to come through me. Finally, he says, no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. He's claiming the exclusive ability to reveal God to men. He's saying, it's up to me. Whoever I wish, whoever I will, will know the Heavenly Father. And this revelation serves to give us confidence to believe the amazing words that he's about to speak in the next few verses. Because the true happiness of man lies in knowing God. And the Lord Jesus Christ is saying, if you want to know God, you have to come to me. But he's not asking you to come. He's telling you to come. See that in verses 28 through 30 with the commands of Christ. The commands of Christ. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's three commands in this invitation to sinners. Come, take, learn. Coming to Christ is not a geographical move. It's not a call to come to a certain spot at the front of the auditorium. Christ declares, come to me. We're not coming to a religious movement or an institution or a philosophy of life. We're coming to Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Savior of sinners. We come to Christ as he's revealed himself to us in the scriptures. We come to the Christ of the gospel who bore the judgment of God on himself at the cross and rose from the dead by the mighty power of God to confirm the effectiveness of all of his work. And coming to Christ excludes all others. He alone is the way to the Father. But notice there's a qualification about who's to come to Christ. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. And the words imply this people who are wearied by the legalism of their day and the labor and the striving to please God by their own efforts. The present tense of heavy laden suggests it's an ongoing struggle that the anxious sinner is left with can only be described as an intense burden that's brought on by the frustrations of man-centered attempts to get to God. Jesus also says, take, take my yoke upon you. Now, a yoke is used for oxen in pulling wagons or plows. Two oxen would be joined together by one yoke. And normally one ox would be older and stronger and carry most of the weight, and that way they would put a younger ox uh, next to him who would learn how to pull in harmony uh, with the other one. And the call of Christ in the gospel is never that we can chart the course of our own lives or we can follow our own will. The yoke means we are joined to Christ. He is the strong one pulling the load, but we go with him every step of the way. And then finally he says, learn, learn from me. The word means to learn through instruction. It carries the idea of being a Disciple of Christ who's regularly learning from him. Reminds us that Christian life is a journey. And all along the way, uh, Christ is instructing us through his word. He's taking the circumstances of life, the good and the bad, uh, the success and the suffering, the joys and the trials, and applying gospel truth to each and every one. 
He continues to reveal himself to us and to expose us to the depth of our weakness and our need for his constant supply of grace. So in the invitation of Jesus Christ, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means you come to Christ recognizing him alone as your Savior. It means you've taken up the yoke of being joined to him as Lord of your life so your delight is to do his will. It means you're learning from him, being regularly instructed out of his word. That's a Christian, one who's come to Christ, been yoked to Christ, and regularly learns from Christ. But it's not all commands and obedience. It's much more than that because those same verses contain the promises of Christ, the promise of Christ. It says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You can find the commands of Christ to exceed your confidence. And so Jesus explains why we're to come to him as weary and burdened sinners. And it goes back to who he is. He's asking you to trust him, to look at his character. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Unlike the religious leaders that confused people, Jesus is gentle and humble. People are accustomed to the arrogance of the Pharisees, but Christ declares his selflessness and his humility. And he's dependable in all that he promises. In perfect humility, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He also explains that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's Christ who's borne the yoke of the law for us, fulfilling its demands, satisfying the righteousness of God on our behalf, Romans 10. It's Christ who has taken the burden of our sin at the cross, continues to intercede for us as our great high priest so that he saves forever, Hebrews 7. The yoke is easy, the burden is light, only because Christ has accomplished all that the Father sent him to do on our behalf, John 17. And therefore, Christ promises rest. Come to me, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon uh, you and learn from me, and you will find rest for your souls. The rest is certain because Christ has secured it. Rest implies rest from that self-striving for forgiveness, since Christ declared it is finished uh, at the cross in John 19. It's rest for those who are troubled over sin. Until you feel the reality of your sinfulness, then this rest makes no sense. But when you know you're a sinner who deserves God's judgment, then rest from the anxiety over that judgment is what you long for. This is where people, those of you maybe here this morning who are without Christ, struggle. Because you hear the invitation to come to Christ, you think that's going to spoil your life. It's going to wreck your plans, ruin your ambitions. That Christ is going to rain on your parade and life will become boring. Listen to his words. You will find rest for your souls. In other words, there's a satisfaction of rest through Christ. He calls you to his yoke and his burden and guarantees by all the power of the sovereign creator God that you will find rest for your souls. And you need the rest of Jesus Christ. It's very simple. First of all, Jesus says, come to me. Not come to that. Not do all these things. Come to me, a person. 
Some years ago, someone said, you know what, I'd be a Christian if I could have an airtight, watertight argument for God. You know what? Read the Bible, read about Jesus. He doesn't say follow these instructions. He says, come to me. Read who he is, read what he does, read how he works, read how he lives, read what he says. And you'll see that God doesn't give us an airtight, watertight argument. He gives us an airtight, watertight person. Come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me and you will find rest for your souls. Only Jesus can give you that kind of rest. Only Jesus can give me that kind of rest. And only Jesus can give Miley that kind of rest. Isn't that what Miley needs? I have no doubt that Jesus would tell Miley Cyrus to come to him and he would give her rest. He's not blind to her life. He knows what's going on. He knows that sin is fun. That's why we don't have to be commanded to do it. There's joy in the drink and comfort in the caress and fun in the fling and laughs with the high and adrenaline with the affirmation and sin gives us pleasure. But that pleasure is always short-lived and it always leaves us empty. And Jesus would tell Miley that sin will never satisfy her soul because she was made for so much more. St. Augustine, who once found life in that same kind of sin, said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And there's nothing down the road that Miley is on but pain and sorrow with a few cheap thrills on the way. And I think Jesus would say to her, come to me, Miley, you're laboring, you're heavy laden, I can give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle and lowly heart. It's the only way you'll find rest for your soul. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. He would tell her there is rest from trying to keep everyone else happy. There's peace from your haunting conscience. There's an answer to what you're seeking, and I'm it. In the Gospel of John, chapter 4, Jesus encountered this woman who was notorious. She had known many men, and they'd all left her, or she had left them. And when she spoke with Jesus, he told her that he could give her what she was looking for. He told her, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus promised that woman who had never been satisfied in her whole life, the answer for her soul's craving was himself. Jesus could heal her and take away all her guilt and all her shame and all her wounds. He could give her rest. But to have it, she had to leave the old ways behind. And rather than let her stay in the darkness, he calls her sin into the light and exposes her for who she really is. And he says to her in John 4, go call your husband and come here. The woman answers, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you are right and saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Thank you for not lying to me. Because God is holy, he will not accept our sin. He wants to give us peace and rest, but he wants us to repent. We cannot love both sin and the Savior. And Jesus called the woman to leave her sin and come to him, and by the end of the story, it appears that she's following Christ. Jesus uh, 
had given her that spring of water welling up to eternal life. And she has run back to the town where she's a known woman and cries out to everyone, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could he be the Christ? And I think Jesus would tell Miley that he knows her sin and it will not satisfy her, but he can. Jesus would tell Miley to turn from her sin, to come to him and he will give her rest. And she desperately needs it. Because the world has taken a Disney princess and turned her into a profane person. But Jesus is in the business of taking profane people and turning them into princesses. I think Jesus would have much to say to Miley Cyrus. And it would sound a lot like what he has to say to the rest of us. Let's not harden our hearts to his voice. But let's follow the one who came to save sinners like us. He calls us to repent. He calls us to come to him. And he calls us to his table. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that you've given us a king. Help us to see him and come to him and find rest for our souls. We have no greater need. And now as we come to your table, show us in the brokenness of the bread and the pouring out of the cup, the grace and mercy of Christ. And Lord, if there's anyone among us today who who comes here not knowing you, not trusting you, we ask by your Spirit you would draw that person to yourself that they might receive and not reject the beloved Son. Help us to know and believe that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Receive God's blessing. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. God bless you. We'll see you this afternoon.